Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Madison, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMadison.com. I love plot twists. You know that moment when you're encountering a story, whether it's a movie or a television series or a book, and you think you have the narrative figured out, and suddenly it twists. The rug is pulled out from under your feet, your jaw drops, and the whole narrative has changed. As I was thinking about some of the famous plot twists in our culture, I thought about some of our favorite movies, like The Empire Strikes Back. The moment in Cloud City when Darth Vader tells to a horrified Luke Skywalker, no, I am your father. Or the moment in Planet of the Apes when Charlton Heston is riding a horse along a beach at the end of the movie and he suddenly falls to his knees when he sees the Statue of Liberty sticking up out of the sand. And he realizes he's not on an alien planet, but Earth in the distant future. And he realizes to his horror, again, what humanity has done to its civilization. We as a culture, we love plot twists. And think about your favorite plot twists. The joy and entertainment you had when the narrative shifted. When you were caught by surprise and your jaw dropped. But now think about that plot twist as you go back to it. Maybe a second time or a third time. For some of you, it's your favorite story, 10, 15 times. Each encounter, that plot twist loses its shock value. You know it. You come to expect it. Maybe the first time you can read elements of the story in light of the plot twist, but you'll never have that initial shock again. Now think about those plot twists that are spoiled for you. Now we in our culture, we hate spoilers, right? Every time there's a big movie, we avoid social media so we don't have the new Marvel movie or the new Star Wars movie ruined for us. I can think about, from my own experience, the movie The Sixth Sense. Now I won't spoil it for you if you haven't seen it, if you haven't, see it soon. Um, the movie's been spoiled for me for a long time. I know the major plot twist. I can never watch that movie and feel the initial entertainment of it. Sure, I can see aspects of it, but the whole value of the movie has been lost to me. I think more than being spoiled or becoming familiar, they can even become culturally entrenched. Now, I felt okay using The Empire Strikes Back because it's such an an artifact in our society, right? Everybody knows that Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father, even to the point that we now even misquote the line. It's not, no, I am your father. We are sure it is, Luke, I am your father. And even they become so culturally entrenched, they can be parodied. I think about the Statue of Liberty example. And if you've been around UW-Madison for a few years, you may have noticed last February, a group of students inflated the Statue of Liberty, or at least part of it, to stick out of the top of the ice of Lake Mendota. And of course, that reenacts a prank from the 1970s. Now, the prank works, and it's funny, because we all know it, right? We know this scene. It is iconic in our culture. This morning, as Scott has said, is Epiphany Sunday. And other than celebrating, like eating king cake if you're from New Orleans or however you you mark Epiphany, we celebrate the Epiphany worldwide as the revelation of the gospel light to the Gentiles. And it's embedded in the story 
of the Magi, of a group of wise men showing up at Christ's home and giving gifts to the baby Jesus. Now, you know this story. You've probably heard it before, before Ian read it this morning. You've probably sung about it. You've seen it in art depictions like the one on our bulletin or in nativity scenes, whether in your own home or in churches or in Capitol buildings. It's familiar. Odds are you may have even seen kids act out the story in nativity plays. I can remember one of the shining moments of my brief acting career. As a kid, I got to play Magi number two, which meant that I walked up carrying my spray-painted bottle of perfume, set it at the manger scene, and sung, probably rather poorly, the fourth verse of We Three Kings. We all know this story. In fact, like a good story, it's even had misquotations attached to it. How many wise men are there? We all assume it's three, right? We've even given them names, Melchior, Balshazar, and Gaspar. And while those names are awesome, in reality, we don't know how many wise men there are. There's at least two. Could be a hundred, could be a thousand. We don't really know. And in fact, if you're from an Eastern Syriac tradition, there are 12 wise men. And the tradition is even so familiar, we can parody it. One of the memes I saw circulating this holiday season was of the three wise women who show up after the three wise men and they bring diapers, formula, and casserole dishes. As a new parent, I can definitely associate with that. I feel that humor there. But I think that we can do this because we all know the story. We all know about the three wise men or the group of wise men that show up at our manger scene. But in its first century context, when this gospel is first written and this story is first heard, it is a shocking turn of events. It would have blown the audience's minds of the gospel of Matthew. And I wonder if, because of our familiarity with the story, we run the risk of becoming desensitized to the shocking plot twist contained in the story. And so this morning, as we look at this familiar text, my hope is that we can encounter the wonder of the story, the shocking depth of God's grace and love, and also find to us, I think, a warning as well. So let's begin in Matthew chapter 2. You can turn to your bulletins. It should be there for you. And we'll start at the beginning. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And then continue on down to verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So we have a familiar scene, right? Wise men, magi, coming to the baby Jesus and giving him these expensive treasures. But who are magi? What exactly are these men? 
I really enjoyed this part of the sermon. I got to go full depths into my ancient Near Eastern nerdness here. And I found out that the term magus, and here magoi, originally denoted members of Persian, a Persian priestly caste from a specific Median tribe. Herodotus uses this to talk about individuals who in the Persian courts would give offerings, perform sacrifices, and worship either their gods or later the Zoroastrian god. Now, in Hellenistic culture, once the term gets a life of its own, it becomes used more broadly for anyone who possesses or uses a supernatural knowledge or ability. We can think here of magicians in the ancient world, dream interpreters, or for our purposes, astrologers, those who look at the stars and make predictions based off of them. And most likely, the individuals in our story are astrologers, likely from the east, from the region of Babylon and Persia. Now, I do need to take a second here because I think when we think of astrologers, we have kind of a low view of astrology, right? We think of the individuals dressed in weird robes on old 90s infomercials or people in Jackson Square in New Orleans promising our future or whoever they task with writing the really cheesy horoscopes in the newspaper. We don't look at these people with a lot of respect today. But in the ancient world, these individuals, especially those from Babylon, would have been considered some of the most advanced and high-class people of their day. You see, they are participants in a long-standing tradition of Babylonian astrology that goes back nearly three millennia from this point, all the way back to ancient Sumer. These individuals, they spent their lives observing the stars, and of course, over time, it became highly advanced. These are really our first astronomers. They could chart the movement of the planets. They could predict when eclipses would happen. And they thought that if they could somehow observe these heavens, that the gods would write to them the mysteries of the universe. They're likely highly literate, not just in Aramaic or Greek or Latin, but also in ancient languages like Akkadian and Sumerian. And I can tell you, as one who studied them, they are maddeningly difficult. I hate doing Akkadian sometimes. And in fact, they have weird, um, but these men, they know it well. And in fact, they have long texts memorized, lists of the stars and their movements. They're highly literate, highly advanced, and extremely successful. And this leads to our first real plot twist. Here are these foreign scholars, these men of high renown, and they show up in backwater Jerusalem. Now, we tend to think of Jerusalem as a really important city in the ancient world because our biblical text comes from there, but in the Roman world, Judea's kind of on the periphery. It's not really important. Rome sends people there to administer who they don't want in Rome anymore. It's not really a happening place. And here come these magi. And more than that, they go from Jerusalem to a small village of Bethlehem. And you can imagine for me with, a second, with me for a second if... You were a resident of Bethlehem, a small agricultural village, seeing kings or wise men suddenly coming into your city, riding camels and dressed in magnificent robes. This would be shocking. In order to grasp a little bit of what this would look like in our modern world, I thought about the example of Harvard professors and Oxford professors and Sorbonne scholars from Paris suddenly showing up in Little Rock, Arkansas, asking about the birth of a local governor or for our purposes, showing up in Madison and ending up in Mount Horeb. 
One commentator put it this way, for these four dignitaries to prostrate themselves in homage before a child in an ordinary house in Bethlehem is a remarkable illustration of the reversal of the world's values. So from the get-go in the ancient world, this is a shocking scene. The highest upper class of academic society showing up at an ordinary house in Bethlehem and worshiping and paying homage to a baby. But in the Jewish world, it carries an extra degree of shocking plot twist. These are Gentiles. They're not Jewish. They may have had some contact with Jewish communities in Babylon or in the East, but they're Gentiles. And they come asking for the Messiah. And more than that, they're not just Gentiles. They're astrologers. I mentioned that astrologers had a high degree of respect in, as- in parts of the Roman Empire and aspects of the Roman Empire. In ancient Israel, they're not valued highly at all. Deuteronomy 18 has a long condemnation against astrology, telling the Israelites, you're not supposed to do this at all. The book of Jeremiah, or Isaiah rather, in 40, chapter 47, condemns and makes fun of Babylon for relying on astrology. And yet, here they are, coming to see the Messiah. And not only are they foreign scholars, not only are they Gentile astrologers, as I mentioned earlier, they're likely from Babylon. Now, if you know your ancient history, or at least your Israelite history, Babylon is not a very welcoming place to the Israelites. Babylon represents the symbol of exile. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians were the ones who came in and destroyed the temple, removed the Davidic king from his throne, and started what at this point is six centuries of exile. And yet here are Babylonians showing up at the manger scene. Now, if you're paying attention earlier to our Hebrew Bible reading that Emily read for us, you'll see that Isaiah predicted this scene. In this cha- Isaiah chapter 60, where he talks about the light coming and the glory of the Lord rising upon Israel and all the, ki- the children, the sons and daughters coming back, we get a line in verse 6 talking about a multitude of camels, young camels, all those from Sheba shall come and they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises to the Lord. And in the book of Isaiah, this is a symbol of the nations coming to worship in Jerusalem. You see, to this exilic community, Isaiah is telling them that one day the exile will be reversed. Your kids will come back, and not only that, the nations will bring their wealth and worship your God. And here we have the very fulfillment of that scene. These wise men bring gold and frankincense. And like a good TV salesman, they remind us that, wait, there's myrrh. They show up in this scene, bringing their gifts. And this signals to all of us, this is a reversal of the exile. It's finally happening. Whereas Israel had once gone to Babylon, now Babylonians come to Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, these are the first individuals to encounter the Christ child outside of the Holy Family. Luke talks about shepherds and people in the temple, but Matthew focuses here. And he brings these extremely unlikely characters to our nativity scene 
I think, to tell us something. And it's really what epiphany is all about. The gospel is for everyone. These are the most unlikely people to come to Jesus, and yet, here they are. God has drawn them to himself, and they get the chance to worship the Messiah. The gospel is for everyone. Now today, if you're a visitor and you're wondering, is this whole Christian thing for what I've done, can I really be welcomed in this community? You don't know who I am or where I'm from or what I've done. I can assure you that if the first people to come to the nativity scene are Babylonian Gentile astrologers, then you are surely welcome. The gospel is for you. Now, for those of us who are part of this church, this is a reminder that we are to be a place that is welcoming to all. We should never be surprised those whom God calls and how he calls them. For a Jewish audience, it's pretty shocking that God would use the stars to bring astrologers to him. And there's a truth here, I think, that the astrologers, they can only get so far on the star, they still have to encounter God's word to be told exactly where to go. But the truth is still out there that God is constantly drawing people to himself. And even doing shocking, amazing ways, and even mundane ways. But may we be a place that welcomes all who come, all whom God brings, to this gospel light that has been revealed to all. So that's one aspect of the plot twist. We have unlikely characters coming to the Messiah. But I think if we look closely, we can see the contrast to these magi. Perhaps an even more shocking aspect of the story. We'll, get, we'll begin again in verse 3. Now when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now you can imagine why Herod is troubled here. He, after all, is the king of Judah at this point, and he hears about a new king being born, and this signals likely a threat to his rule. And all Jerusalem is troubled? Well, because Herod is troubled. He's a violent, unpredictable king, so they wonder what is going to happen next. But then he does something interesting. He assembles all the chief priests and scribes of the people and inquires of them where the Christ is to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then we get a quote from the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod, he assembles the greatest religious minds of his day. All the experts of the biblical text, those who know the Torah, who know the prophets, have studied this since they were young, have large portions, portions of it memorized. They show up and he asks them the question and they give him the answer like that. They're able to give the answer, and not only just give the answer, know exactly where it's from, and direct Herod, like a good biblical scholar, to the texts that support their conclusion. But it's interesting that they suddenly fall out of the story here. We don't hear from them for the rest of the story. In fact, they seem kind of apathetic about this question that Herod has. Now, I do want to give the scholars in this story a bit of a benefit of the doubt. Maybe they had a reaction and Matthew's just not telling us. Maybe Herod is being a bit deceptive here. But I think if we extruth, 
that those closest to the gospel often seem to miss it. These religious leaders who should be the first in line, they, they know these texts. They know every proof text about what the Messiah should be. And just like all of Israel, they've been waiting for six centuries for this. They know that Herod's not the king promised. He's a half-Jew, half-Idumean, non-descendant of David. They know that though the temple's built, it's not the same. And they certainly can realize that even that, that with Roman control, this isn't the way that God intended it. And yet, when the Messiah comes to them and they encounter the very promise they've been waiting for, they miss it. One commentator put it like this, formal knowledge of the scriptures, Matthew implies, does not in itself lead to knowing who Jesus is. Now, none of us are as advanced as these scribes and priests. But if they can miss it, can we? I think just like the Magi signal that all are welcome, these religious leaders signal to us a warning that all can miss it. I wonder sometimes in our familiarity with the text if we run the risk of missing the message of Christ. I want to stop for a second. I am definitely not condemning biblical scholarship. I would be the last person to do that and condemn my own profession. And I'm not condemning getting to know the Bible well. That's a very worthy Christian discipline and what we're called to do to study this Bible. But I wonder if sometimes our familiarity and the expectations that come with that familiarity might be dangerous. As we enter into this new year, this new season of our lives, my hope is that we as a community can continue to cultivate a wonder at what God can and will do and an openness to what he can and will say. May the familiar not become too familiar we miss its value. You know, we're ending, as Scott said today, this is the, the end of the Christmas season. We're coming up to the, the 12th day of Christmas tomorrow, and we then transition as a church into um, a sort of, you know, over the next few weeks between Epiphany and between the start of Easter season and Ash Wednesday. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount. Now, for some of us, this is a familiar text. We've heard the words dozens of times. But my prayer for us as a community is that as we meditate on these words, as we study these words together, that we'll be open to the ways that God might shock us, amaze us, and more importantly, like the Magi, draw us closer to himself. So on this Epiphany Sunday, as we celebrate with Christians all over the world, and we meditate on that truth, that the gospel is for everyone. Whether you are the ultimate outsider, like the Magi, or the ultimate insider, like our religious leaders, hear this truth today, that the gospel, this promise of the Christ child, this light of the kingdom of God, is for you. Happy Epiphany. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.